Well, you all should be uh, seeing some handouts that are going around. And uh, if you're online and you want to request these handouts, please contact Mrs. Q in the office there. You can call her tomorrow. Um, and she can either email you a copy of all these, or uh, if you uh, live far away or you're, you just use mail, uh, we'll mail you a copy of all these as well for anybody online or listening to this on recording. But you should be getting three separate handouts. One is the introduction that we do every time we do an introduction to a new book. And in this particular case, the book of Kings, first and second, I'm sort of introducing both books, if you will, tonight that way, even though we're going to be going line by line and verse by verse through the book of Kings. You also then have a chronologic or chronology of the prophets. That's the second handout you got. And that's because you really, in my, I believe, I, I don't know how you study the book of first and second Kings without studying the prophets in conjunction because they're God's mouthpiece as he was speaking to the people and he would often use these prophets. And so I have a, another sort of chart that came out into the back of these that looks like this. And this is tied more to the king and then the prophet that was there. And you have that broken down by kingdom, northern and southern kingdom, as well as by um, century. So, you know, there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot you're getting handed out. And then finally... Um, the third handout is the one that you should also have, which is the kings of Israel and Judah that we put together. And this one goes through, and again, it's listing them out, but it also is a real, it's a kind of handy sheet. You know, how did they, you know, were, did they do evil? Were they good? Um, as you'll see, the kings of Judah, as we go through a lot of this, as we study the prophets, you'll see that certainly there was about eight within the kingdom, the southern kingdom that way, that God will in one way or another addresses um, good, right? Uh, however, you only see one uh, king of Israel, that's the northern, right, uh, Jehu, and technically it's mixed. So I'll explain. That means he starts well but doesn't finish well. Out of the 19 kings that you'll see there compared to the 20 kings that you'll see in the southern Judah um, kingdom there. So there's a whole lot we're going to go through. So I please bring these handouts with you as you come back for the next year or whatever it takes us as we go through first and seconds. There's a lot of meat. I'm going to take time to really go through a, a decent um, introduction for you all this evening. And then we're going to try to go through the first 14 verses. So, so uh, as I listen to my wife chuckle, that's bad when the pastor's wife's like, yeah, I talked to the Holy Spirit before you did, buddy. No, um, let's, let's, bow. thanks, honey. Let's bow our heads and uh, pray. Lord, um, as you just overheard my wife, no, Lord, um, as you just overheard Jesus, we, we certainly desire your presence. We know we're gathered in your name. And we're on holy ground here, Lord. Your word's going to go forward, and we pray that you would anoint it. Lord, um, I don't know how many people have read um, the book of Kings, Lord, before here. And God, maybe this is the first time somebody's going to go through a line-by-line -line study. God, I pray that you will just blow their socks off, Lord, with all that you want to teach us and show us. There's something here for everyone, no matter how many times we've been through this. And God, I just thank you for that in your holy word, that we never, ever 
Uh, it never grows dull, and we never grow bored of it, Lord God. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the marrow into the right into the heart in that area way that you planted in our in our hearts so beautifully, Lord. So Jesus, we just thank you uh, for the privilege to gather here, and we pray you again. You anoint this time. Let your Holy Spirit speak to us. And uh, God, I just thank you for your holy word and for your people here tonight. I pray you bless them and give them eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit has to say. And I, and I pray and I ask this together with my brothers and sisters in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people pray. Amen. So as a way of introduction, I'm just curious, and not to call anybody, how many people have studied, if you've studied First uh, and Second Kings line by line and verse by verse in a deep study, just raise your hand for me. Um, so two, three. So a small majority in here, a small majority. Okay, that's good. No, no, praise the Lord. You're in the right place. The word of God's being opened. This is beautiful. So that's why I'm going to take a little bit of time to kind of go through a little bit more of an introduction. And I'm going to do both introduction to both books. I won't be doing a separate introduction for Second Kings uh, for the obvious reasons once we go through this. Um, first and Second Kings, just so you if you're taking notes, and I encourage you, there's notebooks in the back, there's pens in the back. These things may be helpful. Um, certainly, it follows from the, the books that, you know, we see Samuel, First and Second Samuel. Remember, those were one book uh, as well at one time. Uh, First and Second Kings was one book, and First and Second Chronicles was one book. Sort of, the, they called them the treesome or the three that way, the, the triplets that way, because they come as we see them as two books, two, four, six, but at one time, they were originally one book, originally um, in the Hebrew that way. It wasn't until the Septuagint uh, writers came by and as the translation of the Greek that actually at that time they got split apart for readability into actually First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles, okay? Um, but they go back from the time of Samuel, really. If, really, if you go all the way back, it's, it's kind of God's history as we began back in the book of Joshua, right? Um, judges, then Samuel, Kings. These were all known in the Torah that way as the former prophets. That's what it was called. And there, there are historical books by genre. You know what I mean? I say genre like a hymn or poetry. These are known as historical books, and they count for sort of Israel's arrival into the promised land, and then obviously the eventual loss of that land, including not only the, 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 the northern tribe, but also the southern tribe through the Babylonian uh, exile. So it covers that whole period of time. And right up until about almost 538 BC. It'll comprise somewhere around 400 to 500 years that we're going to read about in just first and second Kings that way, okay? Now, we know that because if you'll just look in first Kings chapter 14, you can just turn there quickly. Um, we know that it was written after the time the Jews returned from exile and um, you'll see in their chronicles, it'll talk about chronicles. However, that's not the same chronicles that we have in our Bible as what we call first and second chronicles. But you can just look in chapter 14 as I'm sort of introducing this, and you'll see that they're going to make sort of this return, and you can see that that had not, uh, that's not the same thing there. That's not what we're talking about as far as the exile, right? That, that they had been written after their return from exile. Now, God had made a covenant with Israel, you may remember, <laughs> giving his law and promise and blessing that way, okay? I think that as we read this, especially you think about the book of Deuteronomy, what does God put a high premium on? Obedience is better than sacrifice, right? We remember that? First Samuel 15 there, I believe. 
Well, the one thing that as we come from Deuteronomy and we, we've learned that, we know that God's obedience or obedience to God and the blessings, they go hand in hand that way, right? They go hand in hand and it shouldn't be separated. And Deuteronomy points that out and Kings, First and Second Kings is going to make that very, very clear to us. And I think what the Holy Spirit is showing us here is that disobedience and idolatry or idolatry lead to failure and ultimately God's judgment. And that's exactly what we're going to see in the Assyrian invasion and what we're also going to see in the Babylonian invasion. That was a direct judgment for the disobedience and idolatry by Israel and the people of Israel. Um, and when I say Israel at this point, I'm talking about the combined kingdom. I'm not separating northern and southern yet. But just so you understand what I'm saying that way. Um, I think studying these books in conjunction with the other 64 books, which is why I mentioned the prophets, uh, prophets is, is a wise way to study First and Second Kings. Um, certainly we know this is God's inspired word, but the way he ties these together, especially as we start to get to Rehoboam, we're going to be pulling that out. We're going to be looking at it and then we'll come back and we'll start looking at the prophets and what God was speaking. So it's going to take us a little bit more time, but there's a whole lot of pearls that God wants to string through this, uh, chronologically for us, historically. And I think theologically, again, to point out that we're going to see this repetition of error. It's the same repetition of error. It's basically what we learned back in Judges, when, when men and women do what's right in their own eyes, and they sort of don't consider God's um, judgments as statutes that way, um, commandments. And I think that's the thing that seems to be repeated as a, a theme over and over again. And we'll see that same theme in Chronicles. The only difference is Chronicles is, if I had to separate the two for you, the way that I, simply, Chronicles is from a priestly perspective. It's always from a priestly point of view, where when we see this, it's not from a priestly point of view. It's either from the people and what they do and God's perspective, and then the prophets is the mouthpiece sort of overlaying that. So if, you, if you're kind of seeing that in 3D, that's what this looks like. It's, it's you've got the books, but then you've got the prophets, and then you're kind of tying it in, and God just strings the pearl through all of them. And it sounds probably more complex than it actually is, just reading the Word of God, but that's what's involved in our study. It's going to be a wonderful study as the Lord anoints it. Uh, authorship. We always talk about authorship. So there is no human author given in First and Second Kings there, right? Um, you won't find that in chapter 1, verse 1, or verse 5, as you're used to seeing in many of the Old Testament passages or New Testament uh, scripture. What we know, and some of this comes back to Jewish tradition, okay, and I, I want to be very careful, say Jewish tradition, is that most of the rabbis and through Jewish tradition had said that the human authorship here, and certainly we know it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, was by Jeremiah. That was traditional. Now, I will tell you that in the last 10 years, you've started to see seminaries begin to say, well, maybe it wasn't just the prophet Jeremiah, but maybe it was a collection of the prophets that have now started to uh, contribute to this book, um, the books that we have here that form our understanding of First and Second Kings. But I, I hold very much to the traditional teachings um, that it was Jeremiah and um, and I think that's important. Um, when were the books of Kings written, right? If you're following along in your handout there. They were written sometime before 561 BC, okay? Uh, King Joachim was released from prison about halfway through that time, right, as the Jewish exile in Babylon. And actually, this is the last uh, recorded event we have in First and Second Kings. Well, Second Kings in particular, 
from the exiles, he returns to Jerusalem in 538 BC. It's the last event. So again, that helps us also back into what prophet and also who would have been around to be that mouthpiece. And the prophets had been warning about the wicked idolatrous behavior that, that would bring judgment upon them. And that is the reason for their present disaster. I'd just like to read a quote from you from 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 11 through 13. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. That's an incredibly important passage. Why? Because one, God is a God of oaths. He conners those oaths. And what oath did he make to David? Do you remember? It was the, what we call the Davidic covenant. And that would be the Messiah would eventually come through the line of David, right? So he describes in 1 Kings 11 how even though, and I think this is just amazing, the grace of God. I mean, can we ever stop? You can't ever stop talking about the grace of God. Even though Solomon, who starts very well but does not end well as we'll read together, he doesn't turn around because of his sin and go, you know what, forget this whole thing. Forget what I said to your dad. Forget what I promised through Israel and Jerusalem and what I'm going to do to the Israelites. Forget all this. No, no, no. God had a plan of redemption, and he was going to carry out that. As we had just read on Sunday, it was before the what? Very foundations of the world. And we can't help but seeing Messiah Jesus really in all of this. And that's the other thing I think just so powerfully comes through the books of Kings here. And it is a long account, again, from the reign of Solomon all the way through, you know, the reign of Joash. There's a man by the name of King Omri. Again, at that time, or Omri, some people like to pronounce it, he was a very, very well-known king, um, even extra-biblically. Many people knew of this king. There's a lot of extra-biblical writings. I find it interesting that you don't read but maybe two to three verses in all of First and Second Kings about this man. Why is that? Because he did not do what was right in God's eyes, right? He was part of that, that uh, northern and not the southern tribe, so the northern Israel, not part of the southern, not part of Judah. He didn't do what was right in God's eyes. If you look in on your list of the kings, you can actually find his name. And I think God was going back and he was drawing attention really to the human king that they had seen previously, the only one that sort of did measure up in some capacity, not that he was perfect. And we all know who that was because he had a heart after God, right? And who was that? King David, which we just came off of in first, well, in second Samuel that way. And we just came off reading all about that. So God picks up in first and second Kings with that as the standard. And in the first couple chapters, we're going to read about, um, you know, King David's going to basically be on his deathbed and the kingdom is going to be transferred to uh, who God is going to say should be in power. Although, once again, we're going to see what happens when man strives and seeks to dominate and control. And it's just another Absalom move. That's all it is. It's going to be another move of Absalom like we read in Samuel. And we're going to see the same thing over and over again because the devil doesn't have a new playbook. He goes with the same three tricks over and over again, right? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It's exactly what we see over and over again. 
Well, every king in the books basically is assessed by the same standard. Is he faithful to God or not? Does he build the pagan altars or does he tear them down, right? The high places. Um, the kings that encourage idolatry are leading their people astray and bringing destruction upon the kingdoms. And that's the sad part as we see this and read this is um, it doesn't take you but a moment to realize that this isn't just relegated to Israel. While we understand that's in context historically what we're talking about here, we can see any other nation, any other country that presumes to govern themselves and snub their noses to God following the very same steps that Israel followed. And it's not coincidental, right? And it's not coincidental that God tells us in Revelation chapter 6 that today we know that we're living in those last days and that what? God's wrath is going to be pulled out, poured out. Excuse me. That's not coincidental either because of what? Judgment. Judgment. And so that's why 1 Corinthians chapter 10 continues to tell us that these were examples for you and I. That's why we go back and study this, that we don't repeat those same mistakes, right? So let's talk about theme and occasion. Uh, the theme and occasion for the two books is found in the expression that I think occurs nine times in 1 Kings, as David his father. That should give you an inkling of what it's about, as David his father. In other words, Solomon being compared to David or anyone for that matter, because that's sort of the gold standard at that point, because it's a heart after, it's a heart after God. And how each king came and had the free will and choice of how they were going to reign and govern, and so many chose to honor the people more than they did God, to be people pleasers, even at some, to some extent, to be people pleasers. Uh, and they knew Savior Messiah was coming, but they were more interested in a political Savior than the Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, again, points that out, you know, man after God's own heart. But we must remember this, and this is something I have in my notes here. David is a human standard. David too falls short, doesn't he? Jesus. Blessed Jesus. Precious Jesus. That's the standard. That's always been the standard. So we have to be careful here that we don't fall into the same trap that these kings did in some aspect to compare everything back to, even though God's holy word allows it, to compare things back to David. It's really, it's the same thing in our walk in life from an application perspective. We're not comparing our, our, ourselves to our brother or our sister, are we? We're running the race that we're meant to run in the lane we're meant to run, and we compare ourselves or we ask the Lord, am I being conformed into your likeness and image? Because that's... That's the comparison, if you will. Not, not a man. Not, not anybody. Never put a man in that place. It's not fair to the man and uh, certainly not fair to yourself. But we find that king after king fails to attain this worldly standard, which when you think about it, that's even more disgraceful because we're not even talking about God, right, is the standard. But even a human standard. Over and over again, these kings will fail to adhere or to uh, do that. Thank God there were a few that did measure up, and we have those. Because please remember, it's not always you, what you can learn from someone doing well, but it's what you can see and learn in the account for those that did poorly as well, not to repeat those same mistakes. Um, again, we'll find in this section of Scripture, it demonstrates the depravity, sort of the sorrowful condition of human kings and governments. That's the thing that I'm always brought back to when I read First and Second Kings is please remember the people asked for a human king. 
the people asked, right, for Saul. That wasn't God's design. It was a theocracy. That was God's design. That was the original plan. But they wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted to have a, a king or a man over them. And, and God warned them. He says, when you do that, they're going to build chariots. They're going you know, to do horses. They're going to have why. They're going to do all these things. And they're going to do them for themselves. They're, it's all going to be fleshly. It's not going to do what's best for you it's, or what's honoring God in the kingdom that way. It's going to be self-seeking. And yet the people said, well, okay, still, give us Saul. Give us a human king. And, and that's the thing that I, I dare I say, I, I reckon the days we're living today, I, I feel like that same thing is happening in our government today. You know, we can choose righteousness. We all, as people of God, children of God, born-again believers in Christ, we can choose righteousness. We have that choice. And every one of us can take a stand for right living. We don't have to fall in and just say, well, this is what the government or this is what the people, you know. Certainly we want to be law-abiding as citizens, right? We understand that. But until it conflicts with the word of God, no, I'm going to follow God. I'm always going to follow God in that, that particular situation. Uh, I have a note here, and it's, it's kind of interesting. I, I write this, begin in, in light of today, in the days we're living. Um, it's history, and therefore it cannot and should not be changed. Hmm. Boy, that's a hot topic today, isn't it? So many history books are being rewritten. My son's going to school to study secondary education in the fall, Lord willing. And, uh, you know, I said, son, you, you understand what's before you. You, you understand. And he's like, yeah, dad, that's why I'm, I'm doing this. The Lord's leading me in this because I'm going to stand on righteousness and I'm going to tell history like it is, like it was. We're not going to rewrite history any longer. And I thought, praise God. You're going to have your battle, but praise God. God will go with him, and I know that. And I know that there's a lot of historians in this room, too. You know history. Please don't ever forget the history that we're going to be doomed to repeat if we don't understand and learn from that. Um, and I believe it's our pedigree. You've heard of the term spiritual pedigree. Maybe some of you have, some of you have. It's a Christianese way of saying, what's your pedigree? Somebody might say that to you, and it means, where do you come from? What do you hail from? How'd you get saved? What's going on in your life? Again, it's Christianese, but the idea behind that is, what's your spiritual pedigree? Friends, what we're reading in First and Second Kings is our spiritual pedigree. You might be saying, how can that be? You're Gentile. Yes, but we have been grafted in. We've been grafted in. This is our history. This is the history of, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? This is the history of Israel. Surely we're not replacing the church. Isn't replacing Israel, I meant to say. But we're grafted in, and we should look at this as our history and say, Lord, I don't want to repeat these same errors that way, and I want to glorify. I want to tear down these high places, right? And the only altar I want to serve or, or worship on is the one where there's the one true God, you know, Jehovah that way. Again, please look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 with me. If we can just turn there this evening. In your New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the epistle that Paul had written to the church in Corinth. I loved uh, going through Corinthians. It's a, it's a powerful epistle, powerful letter to the church in Corinth. I really love in chapter 10 how the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this to the people in Corinth. He says, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be, what? Unaware. 
How often does Paul say that? We just finished, what, 2 Thessalonians. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, right? He, he continuously comes, I don't want you to be ignorant. You know, I don't want you to be unaware. Such a love. God has such a love for us that he doesn't want us walking aimlessly like that. He says that our fathers were under the cloud. And he's talking about Ezekiel chapter 13, 21, and Psalm 105, 38, and passages like that, right? God, the presence of God. All passed through the sea, right? Exodus 14. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, right? What was that? Manna. What is it, right? Exodus 16 there. All drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. We talked about that last Sunday or the Sunday before. Remember, I said that's why Moses got into trouble because he struck that rock twice. Literally, he didn't understand that God was using that rock as, a, as an example that that was Christ. And by doing that, saying you got to strike Christ twice. No, no, no. We don't put Christ back up on the cross. Once was enough, right? Um, so it was finished, he said. Telestar, teleo in the Greek. Um, but he said, we all drank from that spiritual rock that followed him. That rock was Christ, making it clear to us. Exodus 17, uh, Numbers chapter 20. But with most of them was not well pleased. God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Again, that's the, what happened in Numbers 14. Now these things became what? Our, please underline it there, examples. That means our types. That's actually the translation of the Greek. It's not, it's not the word we would use example. You know typology? This is a type. That's what this is actually saying. These are our types. These are for us to look as we look at First and Second Kings. These are types for us that we can come back and look at and understand and even apply to our modern day uh, life and application. That's what he's telling us here. Not just examples like, oh, that's what it looks like and that's what it was. No, these are typologies. They're types for us. To the intent that we should not what? Lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up and play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in the day, 23,000 fell. Again, book of Numbers, right? Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, circle that please, as some of them also complained and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our, what? Say it, you say it with me. Admonishing or admonition, right? That way. Upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed unless he falls. Whoa, boy, that's a good exhortation. Unless you think you've arrived, unless you think you've got it, you better read your Old Testament. You better read these passages and pay close attention because the minute you think you've arrived or the minute you think you've got your walk in Christ, Boy, so did they. So did they. I mean, at one point, I mean, we're talking about Israel. They, they had the presence of God among them, right? They had the, the ark. I mean, they had every, I mean, we know that the ark was just a, a box early in the mercy seat. But my point is, is they saw God. They talked to God. I mean, I, I just want us to understand that, that sometimes we think, well, it's 2,000 years later, or four, in this case, 3,000 plus years later. You know, well, it's different. You know, if, if God appeared to me today the way he appeared to the Israelites, I, I'd believe, I'd, I'd start obeying then. No, you wouldn't. You do, the, you do the very same thing you're doing now. You, you absolutely wouldn't. So would I. So would I, if that's the case. Because God has given us all 66 books. We have the entire counsel of God right now. We have all of his teaching, all his commandments, statutes, and judgments. And there's really no excuse why any of us 
would want to walk away from God, we should be running to him. Not that we're perfect, but we understand God's character, his heart, and his love for us. And friends, isn't that more than enough? That's more than enough. So he's telling us, pay attention to these things. Pastor Paul was saying that. The Apostle Paul was saying, pay attention. These are very, very important. Don't just, you know, look over these things. Oh, that's a book in there. And, and it's interesting because I asked for a raise of hands in the beginning, not, not to call anybody out, not to make anyone fit, but just to, to demonstrate the, the example of this is that so much of our scripture is, is directing us back to the Old Testament. So much of the New Testament, so much of what Jesus Christ spoke of to Deuteronomy and to other passages, to Samuel, to, to Messianic passages in Isaiah, right? So many passages come, come back and they're, they're brought to life for you and I as new covenant believers, as living in such a time as this. And yet there's so much of the church, friends, that have never read these books, They've never studied these things, and they have no desire to do that. They, they think these things are old, and they're not important, and, and they should just be tabled, and, and we only need to read the New Testament and only the, the, the letters that are in red because that's all that matters. Meanwhile, the Bible says contrary, doesn't it? We just read it in 1 Corinthians 10, and that's why I'm, I'm, I really believe we're all very, very blessed to live in such a time where we have Bibles, and we live in a country at least right now, where we can open our Bibles at any time and study these things and pour over them and be broken and wrecked and just let God change us and, and, and just live and live through the scriptures and allow the scriptures to live through us. And I, I really don't know how much longer this is going to be allowed. And in other countries, we just, we, we just, Pastor Ted came a couple weeks ago. He came up and said, we just, we had two brothers in Christ. We just lost them. They were martyred. And for what? For loving Jesus? For loving Jesus, right? I mean, it's coming to a city or a town near you. I encourage you, write these things. Let the Lord write these things on the tablet of your heart. If this is the last book that the Lord should allow us to read before something should happen, this is more than enough. This is more than enough. It will equip you. It will keep you. It will help you to stand fast. The exhortation he gave them in 2 Thessalonians, as you remember. So, History, again, reveals the decline and fall of the kingdom. But it didn't just happen the way. First, the kingdom was divided, right? That's exactly what we see in 1 Kings. Then what happens? In 2 Kings, the kingdom falls. I think this is an enormous lesson for us. If I was taking notes tonight, because that's the same thing the enemy does. He divides and then he destroys. And he does it the same way every time. Divides, destroys, divides, destroys. So often he likes to take people that are going through situations, circumstances, and he tries to divide them, you know, just keep them away, keep them home, keep them, you know, as though the amber can't be relit. And I just think how unfortunate that is. You know, I think of those that we, we love that are maybe shut-ins that can't get out for medical reasons or other things going on. I hope we're paying visits to them. I hope we're bringing the amber and the light and the love of Christ to them in their homes and, and witnessing to them that way and loving and encouraging them. But this is enormous history and a spiritual lesson for us to understand the human condition and the spiritual warfare that's afoot. I think we, we can't really miss that. He divides, he destroys. And there are key verses that sort of summarize the first two books here, if, if you don't mind. 2 Kings chapter 17, if you wouldn't mind turning there. Verses 22 and 23. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them. Until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he said, by all the servants and what? 
the prophets, by the servants, his prophets, or by his servants, excuse me, the prophets. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria as it is to this day. So what's that speaking of? The northern kingdom and the invasion of the Assyrian invasion that happens in the 700s, right? Why? He told us because of their idolatry, because of their wickedness, because they never stopped following the sins of Jeroboam. What was his sins? Well, you'll learn that as we read together that he was making these high places, that he was causing them to worship other gods. And that's exactly that what continued for four, well, in that particular case, for some 250 to 260 years. For Judah, it lasted a little longer until about 605 B.C., okay? And the second is you look at 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 21, okay? And you'll see this one. It describes the fall of the southern kingdom. Then the kingdom of Babylon struck them and put them to death at Riblah, or Riblah, in the land of Hamath. Then Judah was carried away captive from its own land. And then they went into captivity through the Babylonian uh, invasion, in 1 Kings, we have a record of, again, the division, and 2 Kings is a record of the collapse of the kingdom. That's very, very important as you understand these two books. And it also helps you when you're going back and you're, you're wanting to find different things. You can remember that. Are we talking about the division? Or are we talking about the fall in aspects of the kingdom? And then you'll know which book to find that in. Um, but consider the two books as a unit. Um, they open with King David and close with the king of Babylon. I don't know if you found that interesting. I found that very interesting. They open with King David and they close with another king, but the king of Babylon. And it's a book of man's rule over God's kingdom. And the results are not good. Are not good. The throne on earth must be in tune with the throne in heaven. The throne on earth must always be in tune with the throne in heaven. If blessings are to come and benefits are to accrue to God's people, it can be no other way. And yet today, don't we see people looking for blessings in all the wrong places? Man can't overthrow God's purposes. And we're going to read together line by line and study this and see that even when man tries to thwart that, even through man's wickedness and evil, God is so good that he comes through and he still delivers on his promise and his covenant in spite of the wickedness and evil that is surrounding the remnant that continues to follow and walk in God and Christ that way. He really is a really good God. So again, um, we can contrast this from the book of Chronicles, which captured the history of the United Kingdom and then the kingdom of Judah from, again, a priestly point of view, just so you're, you're tracking from Chronicles. Besides uh, recording history, these two books teach theology. Uh, especially the faithfulness in God keeping his covenant. We, many people come to these books and they, they, they don't study the theology within First and Second Kings, and there's a lot of theology here as well. The sovereignty of God in directing destinies of all nations. That's what I mean when I start to talk about theology, sovereign, sovereignty. That's a big topic. Okay? That's a big topic of study from a theological perspective. Also, the holiness of God as well as the opposition to idolatry. Those are three different topics that we're going to read about. The opposition to idolatry, the holiness of God, okay? And really also the faithfulness of God that way too, but also that God is directing the destinies of all nations. Even the United States of America today, God is directing the destiny of the United States of America. No matter what president's elected, no matter what mayors, governors, or whoever's in place, God is in control, and he allows whoever's in power at that moment to be in power, but he always gives all of his creation 
a choice of how to respond. Will you respond in a righteous, godly manner? Or will you turn around and build up additional high places and worship another god because it suits you under that political motive, right? Every human being has a choice. It's amazing. That's truly grace. And that's grace upon grace when you think about it, right? Especially important uh, in Kings and Chronicles, if I can list them both out, right, um, is the way God magnifies the Davidic dynasty and thus prepares the way for the coming of Messiah. That's huge because we'll see how he's preparing for Messiah, Jesus Christ, that's going to come through that southern tribe and all that they had to hold on to. I mean, imagine being Israel, even in spite of the sin, right, in spite of the judgment. Here you are being carried away, children, you know, wives, men that way, taken from your homes, uh, stripped of all things that you would have held, and being brought to a foreign country and basically brought in as slaves and servants. And yet they held on, the remnant that is, they held on to the promises of God. And God kept his promises and brought them back into the land and ultimately fulfilled what he said he would do in Ezekiel and 36 and other places when he talks about how Israel would come back into their land, that, that because those tribes were divided, northern and southern, he would bring them back together as one tribe, one kingdom. Okay, I, meant to say, I kept saying tribes, I meant kingdoms, forgive me. He's going to bring them back to one kingdom, and isn't that what he do, he's done? You don't go over to Israel today and say, are you from the northern, are you from the southern kingdom? No, you're in Israel, right? And the people are Jewish, right? God has done that. Do you realize? I mean, today we take it for granted because it's what we know. But so, so much of this history, 500 plus years, even some of the portion of the intertestamental period, they refer to themselves as northern or southern. But God had declared in prophecy that, that, would, that was good. he's going to bring them back and he was going to unite them as one united kingdom, which is how they started and how we're going to read 1 Kings is they start as a united kingdom again under David. Do you remember that? Because um, that's where we left off with 2 Samuel. Now, the book of Kings identifies eight kings of Judah, descendants of David, who pleased the Lord. Please understand, we're talking out of 20 kings. Eight. Less than half. And yet God still honors the Davidic covenant to bring Messiah through that line of Judah because he said he would, and he's a promise keeper, and he's faithful, right? So, again, that's what I mean when I say magnifies the Davidic dynasty, now, we're going to read and see kings like Asa, right? First uh, Kings chapter 15, uh, Jehoshaphat, First Kings chapter 22, Joash, Second uh, Kings 12, Amaziah, Second Kings um, uh, 14 there, Azariah or Uzziah, Second Kings 15, right? Jotham, Second Kings 15 as well, Hezekiah, uh, Kings, uh, Second Kings 18, and Josiah, Second Kings 22. Really, when you look at that list of eight, only two truly finished well out of even the eight. So even though the other six did well, only two truly finished strong, as we would say. So out of 20, only two of the kings, if you really want to go off that benchmark, really, it, it, you know. Now, the rulers of the northern, northern kingdom, they were not a godly bunch, right? They, uh, they were not part of David's dynasty. Um, and if you're keeping account, I, I, there's 20 kings in the southern uh, kingdom. Um, in the northern kingdom, there were 19 kings, right? As I mentioned earlier, and you can look on your little chart here, you can see it. It's in yellow on the right-hand side, kings of Israel, and it talks about from uh, 925 through basically 722. And the reason it ends there is because they go into Assyrian captivity, um, which you know who the Assyrian people are, don't you? 
Samaria, right? We, we know who the Samaritans become, right? That's not who the Assyrians are, I should say. That's who, that's, Israel becomes the Samaritans, portion you read about in the gospel. Who were they? What was the capital of Assyria? Or, sorry, what was the capital of Nineveh? It was Assyria, right? Or play that back in reverse. Reverse and play again. You know what I'm saying. It, remember how Jonah, the prophet Jonah, was sent to them just a, a hundred years, well, some 150, whatever it is, years before. And he kept saying, why do I got to go to Nineveh? Why are you sending me to Nineveh? These people, they're fish people. They're disgusting. Why do I got to go to them? I love fish people. I love fish. Um, but you got to go to them. Look, they're terrible. Look at the things they would do. And then they did what? They repented. And they got right, and they received, and, and, and Jonah was so upset about that. Do you remember? He goes and weeps under a tree. Why? You know, why is this happening? Because you know what he was thinking about? What has this got to do with me? What's this got to do with my people, Israel, right? He's, why have I had to go all this way to come here? Little did he know, a few hundred years later, a couple to be specific, <laughs> that the very people that he was investing in Maybe if he had continued to invest in Israel, it wouldn't be the people that God chose to be an instrument of judgment to come back and divide uh, the northern kingdom that way. And what they did is, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, but what they did is, as you study the Assyrian people or you study what the Ninevites did, they would take and they believed in intermarrying groups. So they would take you, the way they would conquer is they would grab you, bring you as slaves, but they didn't try to change your customs or traditions. What they did is encourage you to marry with somebody else that had different customs and traditions, specifically the Assyrian people <laughs> and their customs and traditions, so that you did what? You eventually culturally began to adopt. Isn't that the very thing that God had warned the Israelites about? Do not intermarry that way because you're going to, it's going to lead you into idolatry. We're going to actually see it in Solomon. It doesn't take very long, right? We're going to see it in Solomon, but he said, don't do that. You need to you know, be holy and set apart. Don't defile yourself against these other nations and these women of these other lands in that way. You're not to do that. You're to marry you know, Israelites. You're to, you're to stay within your, your, uh, your nation that way because you're, you're going to be a light. You're going to be a witness to the Gentiles. That was God's plan for Israel as we read in the scriptures. So God had a whole plan, and, and then God, in, in an interesting way, he brings it back around and says, I'll give you what you want. You done, and through Jonah, he starts the process, but you want this? I'll give you what you want. And then eventually what happens, they come in, and the Assyrian people and the northern tribes, they co-marry, co-mingle that way. And from that, do you know what you get? They call it, and I'm, this is not my term, but even in Israel or even in the time of Jesus, they called it a half-breed. And that half-breed was what we know as the Samaritans. And so when you go to Israel or read the Gospels about how Jesus would go through, and obviously he would minister, but the Jewish people, when I say the Jewish people, Judah as we know it, Jehu, Jerusalem, Jewish people, that way, they did not want to go through what? Samaria. Because they considered them dirty, not the same. They were actually their brothers. They were their kin. They were their family from the northern tribes that had intermarried with the Assyrians, so they considered them a half-breed, and they called them Samaritans. This is why it's important to study Scripture. We see how it all comes together, and then you start thinking about Jonah a whole lot differently, don't you? The prophet Jonah and what his mission was from God. And then you start thinking about, wow, Lord, you use the very people that not only Jonah, but Israel was stubborn against to bring judgment. And then because 
Assyria gets arrogant and prideful because they think they're so powerful, then God goes back and judges them because he said, hey, you enjoyed this, Assyria. You enjoyed punishing my people. You were to be an instrument of judgment. And that's also a very good theological lesson for all of us, right? When we should never wish, even our, our, our worst enemy that way, if we have one of those, we should never wish harm upon them or evil or anything bad. We should never ever, because God absolutely condones that. He absolutely condones that in Scripture. But there were 19 kings in the, the northern kingdom, and only one pleased God, and that was with mixed results. Started well, didn't finish well, and that was Jehu, right? You can look at 2 Kings 10, verses 15 through, through 31. Um, let's talk about purpose and theology here. First and second Kings trace the history of Israel monarchy during, again, four you know, terrible centuries that way, uh, from the reign of Solomon, 971 BC, just so you kind of got some dates around this, to Joachim's uh, imprisonment in Babylon, which happened in 562 BC. So to give you sort of that ring fence, the bookmark ends, we're talking 971 to 562. That's what comprises these years for first and second kings. From Solomon's raid, including the battle of the temple, the era of the divided kingdom and the fall of Samaria, and the last years of Judah down to even the Babylonian exile, okay? Uh, now, I will tell you that first and second kings is not a merely political history of the monarchy. It's, again, engrossed with prophetic interpretations of how each king affected the spiritual decline of Israel and Judah. And you have handouts so that you can look at these prophets and what they were to say and what they were to do, and they were used as God's mouthpiece. That's why I say it's very, for me, it's very difficult to study First and Second Kings without studying the corresponding prophets that were sent by God to speak to these people. It wasn't as though they, you know, they were doing what was right in their own eyes and God wasn't saying, hey, stop, you know, you're blowing through the warning signs here. You're committing idolatry. You know, this is, God was not an absentee father, okay? Can I say it that way? He was certainly not an absentee father in this. Um, and first and second Kings explain how history is governed by God's moral law, right? It doesn't change. Circumstances change. Times change. I mean, this was how many years after the Mosaic law was given, uh, God's moral law. Here we are, what, 3,000 years later? Has God's moral law ever changed? No. No, we're never to murder. We're not to commit adultery. We're not to do, those things have not changed and never will change, right? We're not under the law, but we're certainly under God's moral law, if you want to think about it that way. That has never changed. And that's also what's pointed out because, you know, today a lot of, well, come on, pastor. It's, you know, it's 3,000 years later. Times have changed. How about this? It's 20 years later. Times have changed. Everything's all technology. You can't actually expect us to keep a Bible anymore or look at it or carry it around. Nobody does that. I can, I mean, I, I'm in the car all day. I can just do it that way. I don't ever have to sit alone with God. And, and, and I, look, I love radio ministry, and that's awesome. People get, I, you know, people get saved, and that's good. But that doesn't ever replace the ability, you know, your, your opportunity to sit down with the Lord alone in your prayer closet, read your Bible, study the Word of God. That, that certainly doesn't replace that. But there are people that are constantly trying to reinvent the church. They're constantly trying to make new changes or something more sexy or, you know, attractive or something, you know, oh, this is the new greatest thing. You know, we're going to have a Bible study in a pub or, or something. It's happened in this area. It's happened in this area. They do it. They have churches where you can come in and you can go to like a little mini bar and they're doing Bible studies and, because it's cool. And you know what I call that? A bait and switch. Because you bring them in, and then you read the passages in Scripture that don't do that, and then what have you done? You think they like that? You think that was cool to bait and switch them? No, no. That's not part of a church growth plan. Reading the Word of God is. 
because that's the only thing that's going to ever change hearts. You want to grow your church? Read the Word of God. You want to grow a church ministry, a home Bible study? Read the Word of God, right? You, you want your school to grow? You want to see the kids come to school and, and, you know, read the Word of God and just leave the consequences up to Jesus. He'll do it. You want to have a ministry? God's calling you to the mission field? Read the Word of God, right? That's the growth plan. Read the Word of God and watch Him produce fruit from that. It hasn't changed in thousands of years. When Jesus Christ came to earth, he could have done anything. He, he could have done anything. What did he choose to do? He went into church. We call them synagogues today, right? But I, it's an akin to a church, right? What did they do? He went in and he opened up the scrolls and what did he do? He read them. And then he even gave application. Today I say before you in the reading of this scroll, Isaiah, this prophecy, this prophecy has been fulfilled before your very eyes right now. And in your hearing, he actually said that to them. He read the word of God. He could have done anything, but that's what he chose to do because he's already promised that the word of God will never return void. So again, we read here also that um, faithfulness to God's word is rewarded with blessing, but disobedient reaps God's judgment. That doesn't change. These are moral axioms that we see in scripture. Uh, the principles demonstrated in the life of the two kingdoms whose rise and fall were dependent upon their own obedience and disobedience. And dare I say, that's the same thing that is awaiting the United States of America. We have been a very blessed nation, haven't we? Blessed nation for how many hundreds of years? Because we honored God's commandments, statutes, and judgments. We've seen a falling away from that. We really have in the last 50 years in particular. Um, and now we're seeing other things happen. We're seeing a degradation. We're seeing children grow up without knowing the word of God. We're seeing parents grow up without knowing the word of God. And, you know, not even sure how to teach their children the word of God. I mean, we're living in days where we have biblical illiteracy to an extent that we have never seen. I mean, to us, we think it's normal. Well, you know, we're Christians and that's what we do. And, but do you realize that, I mean, this is what everybody did. Like, 70 years ago, this wasn't new to like Calvary Chapel. I mean, this is what everybody did. People studied the word of God. They went to church. Their families communed. They lifted each other up. They, were, they built each other up. People put roots in in the church they attend, not just because they didn't like something or the color of the carpet or the chairs or who upset me here or who upset me there because the word of God was being taught. You could turn around and go, all right, I don't like the chairs, but I'll get over that because the word of God's being taught. But today, in so many places, the word isn't being taught. That's why I encourage, if you know pastors or other under-shepherds or men, and, you know, I encourage, encourage them, teach the word in season and out of season. Be ready, right? That, that's what we need to be encouraging uh, men to be doing. And ladies, teach uh, the children and teach uh, other ladies. Come alongside other women in your home and sisters and read the word of God, right? Because that's what's going to change a nation, not a political savior. That's what's going to, the word of God and Jesus Christ is the only thing that's going to heal this nation. Well, Hezekiah and Josiah met with full approval because of God, or because they did what? They removed the high places and they reformed the defiled worship of the temple. If the United States of America would do that right now, I have no reason to believe God wouldn't honor that and bless our country. It's really not that hard. If we really want change, it begins with a revival and a great awakening. And I, it's the word of God. And, and I've always said, maybe, you know, we're small. Maybe we're that remnant, right? Maybe we're that remnant. reading the word, But we know it's the body of Christ. There are others like us. Just like Elijah. He said, I'm the only one, you know? No. 
there's many brothers and sisters all around the world that are reading the word of God and holding on and standing fast. And that's another lesson from Kings is it doesn't matter again what's going on around your circumstances. Stay in the word. Do what's right. Don't worship the high places, right? And whatever that high place is in your life, right? Certainly we don't go anymore to a, an altar where we light an incense to a high. We don't do that today. But high places can become anything that is between your heart and Jesus Christ. Anything that comes between your heart and Jesus Christ is by definition idolatry. Whatever that looks like. And, and I'll let you fill in the blank that's between you and Jesus, okay? But that is by definition Nothing should come between that. And if there is something, may I encourage you to do what Hezekiah did and what Josiah did, and they tore those down. And you can too. We all can. We can tear those places in our hearts, spiritually speaking, for true worship. Again, the people of God are responsible for their actions. And we see chastening that will come from that. Even uh, we're going to read about a prophet. He's going to be called the man of God. He suffered, he's going to suffer death for his unfaithfulness. We're going to read about him in 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 26. And God is portrayed throughout 1 and 2 Kings as the sovereign Lord of history, right? The prophets were God's spokespersons who were announced uh, the rise and fall of the kings and the kingdoms because God controls destiny. destiny. And there's tons of passages. The other thing, theologically, is God is always faithful. God is always faithful. All Judah's kings sinned. The Lord upheld his promise to David, though, didn't he? By preserving his kingdom and retaining his descendants on the throne. And the same thing for you today. You have all sinned, and I have sinned, right? We fall short of the glory of God. But God is faithful, and he's just, and he's going to keep his covenant. And regardless of what you have done, Jesus Christ is going to honor the covenant he established with you, which is why you can't lose salvation. He's a good, good God. So that's another thing that comes out of 1st and 2nd Kings is the sovereignty and salvation. You can't lose it. It demonstrates it for us because he doesn't take it away from the Davidic dynasty, does he? He still allows the promises to come through that. And the Lord is faithful to his prophets who herald his message in the face of danger. And I think that's a good one for our day. Uh, regardless of the circumstances, again, the prophets were watchmen and they stood. They didn't turn around and run. They didn't try to do what was best for them and escape and try to find a safe haven. That wasn't the plan. They stood, they taught the word of God, and they left the consequences to Jesus. And that's what we're called to do today. It's no different. It's really no different. It hasn't changed in 3,000 years. They were his watchmen, and so are you. Now, let's look at 1 Kings for the remaining few minutes we have here tonight. Um, hopefully that was a, a good introduction for you all to at least understand what First and Second Kings is about. Now we're going to look specifically um, line by line. So if you'll turn to First Kings chapter one verse one. Now King David was old, advanced in years, and they put covers on him, but he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, "Let a young woman, a virgin, be sought out for our lord the king, and let her stand before the king, and let her care for him, and let her lie in your bosom, that our lord the king may be warm. So they sought a lovely young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Shumite, and brought her to the king. 
Some say Abishag, by the way. The young woman was very lovely, and she cared for the king and served him, but the king did not know her. So, first of all, David's obviously in a weakened condition at this point. He's advanced in years. I think we all get that. He's about 70 years old here. Um, this was a beautiful conclusion to a glorious reign. I mean, what else can we say, right, when you think about it? Um, David was so old at this point that he couldn't even keep himself warm. Couldn't even keep himself warm, um, much less try to rule the nation. Even at this point, remember, he was even told, you, should, you don't even go out to battle anymore, David. He's 70 years old. He's sort of staying back, right, at this point. But, you know, 70 is not old, but I would say to you that it's not the years. It's what? It's the mileage, right? David had a lot of mileage on this cat. He had a lot of mileage on him, right? I want you to think about this. A 40-year reign with constant turmoil, constant turmoil, including battles, even including civil wars. So they come to him and say, David, we're going to search out this virgin, this woman to lie with you, right? That our Lord, the King may be warm. Now I, I get it to us today. This sounds strange, right? If, if somebody came up uh, to one of your daughters or they searched out the land and the president or king or somebody in nobility that way came to you and said, we're taking your daughter. We need her to go lie with this person to keep them warm. You'd be like, well, you ain't taking my daughter nowhere. And I got a Smith and Wesson, or I got something to back that up, right? I got, how about it, fathers, right? You're not going to just, okay, I'll take my daughter. Sounds good. No. But you have to understand that they didn't, they didn't have electric blankets at that time, right? They didn't have a, a um, please, how, how else can I say this? Um, it was not a perverted action. Let me, let me explain. Um, you can do some reading, even extra biblically. This was actually medical treatment. Actually, Abishag, she's what we would call today a nurse. She's even referred to by some extra biblical writings of Josephus and others as a physician. In that time, obviously you understand the medical treatments and things were different. Let me, let me explain. Um, it was a way to transmit body temperature, body to body. When you have a newborn child, one of the things they encourage you in the hospital is to do what? Flesh upon flesh, right? You'd have the baby, you lay on the, usually on the mother or even the father for them, flesh upon flesh right? What are you doing? One, they're coming out. They're cold, right? Sometimes they'll even put them in that heater, right? Uh, so you turn around and, you know, body to body, right? That way. Uh, if you're snuggling with your wife or uh, husbands or wives, uh, sometimes, get off of me. What are you doing? No, you would never say that until they're what? Hot or cold. If it's in the middle of winter and they're like freezing cold and they touch their feet on your feet, you're like, you know, and one of you's that way and one of you's the other way. You're like, good, stay over there, right? unless you're like, you know, Superman, where you're like, go ahead, go ahead. And you just toughen up. You don't say anything. You're there, you're there. And then the opposite of that is obviously when you're cold, you know, you snuggle up and you get warm. If you ever camp and you go out, I've camped in the winter, you go out like that. It's nice. I mean, in the military, even with soldiers, sometimes you sleep certain, obviously different directions, but close quarters because there's body heat transfer, right? Obviously not close sleep closely, but enough where body heat transfer can happen. I think you get what I'm saying here. Um, they also used fire and blankets, as we read, but skin on skin was also used to convey heat and care. This is not implying anything immoral happened. Actually, as I was saying, it was recognized as medical treatment at that time, uh, and it was mentioned by an ancient Greek doctor, Galen. Josephus describes this in the Antiquity of the Jews. He said that this was a medical treatment, and he called the servants, 
First Kings chapter one and two, or chapter one verse two, which we just he called them physicians. That's how even Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, referred back to this. Later, Ajaniah would what condemn himself to death by asking for this very woman to be his wife, which has led many to believe that not only was this woman obviously a virgin that way and she had come, but that David had actually taken her to be a concubine. Now, again, not right. God didn't want that. One man, one woman for life. That was God's design. But nonetheless, we even start to believe that maybe Abishag was also became with no, obviously, intimacy that way because he said he did not touch her that way or he did not go into her that way. So we know there was nothing sexual at that point. Again, he was 70 years old. She was younger. There was nothing inappropriate. But what he did is certainly, obviously, out of, you know, out of love, out of care that way, he would have her become a concubine, which is why we believe, again, when Andrew makes that request, uh, everybody's in uproar about that. Like, how could you do that? Kind of like when Absalom turns around and goes to go into David 10 concubines. Like, what are you doing? That's an absolutely disrespect thing to do there. Verse 5, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So this just sort of jumps out of us at us, right? We're tracking. David's old. He's cold. He needs to get warm. You know, this is for care, sort of the end of the, the, his reign, the Davidic reign that way for him. And all of a sudden, his oldest son at this point, which traditionally would have had a right to the throne, but Adonijah, the son of Haggith, that's his mother, his, his uh, David's uh, wife that way, exalt, or concubine, had exalted himself saying, I will be king, and he prepared for him chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Boy, doesn't this sound familiar? He exalted himself, right? Second Samuel chapter 3, verses 2 through 5, describes the sons of David. If you look back at Second Samuel, and you can see that Ajaniah is the fourth son, right? Now, we know that two of the three sons were older than Ajaniah, and they were dead, Amnon and Absalom, right? We, we've read about that. And we suspect the older son, his name was Chileb, either also died or was unfit to rule because he's never actually mentioned in the Second Samuel chapter 3, verse 3 list for whatever reason. We don't know why. As the oldest living son of David, by custom, Adonijah would have been what? Considered the heir of the throne. So we get that aspect. However, this is important, but the throne of Israel was not only left to the rulers by hereditary succession, by what? But God. God was the one that was to determine the next king, right? It wasn't just hereditary succession because you're the oldest son, you should be king. No, it was God that had called David. It was God who originally had called Saul, and it's God that will continue to call the kings and the pastors and the under-shepherds and the and your home, who you're going to marry, and all the things God establishes, God's in control. If we seek him, we'll be in God's will, not against God or out of his will. So clearly we see here that, that uh, Adonijah is making some assumptions here into the heir of the throne. And what is he doing? He violates sort of basic principles of scripture that we should let God exalt us and not exalt ourselves. You can read Psalm 75, verse 6 and 7. You can think, you can read Romans chapter 12, verse 3, you know, when Paul says, do not think of yourself more highly than you what? Ought to, right? So these idea of pride and or thinking of ourselves that we rightly should be in this position, that's not what we should do. That's not what we should do. God places us in the offices and positions we serve and we, we recognize when God does that, and we, we recognize God, God's calling, and we know his calling is irrevocable. 
as it says in scripture. He prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Again, he was putting on a show and he was trying to fake it till he made it. That's exactly what he was doing here. But that's not how God works, is it? You don't just call yourself king. You don't just dress in a kingly robe. You don't just get the chariots. You don't just get 50 guys to run in front of you because you know what the real problem was? There's nobody behind you. You know, one of the ways that we know, and, and Calvary, one of the ways we've for years and years, and years, when guys believe they're called, God will always raise up and he will always surround them with other godly men that way, right? And, and God will do it. If, if a guy comes in and says, I'm a pastor, I'm, I'm an undershot. Well, great, where's your flock? Where's your flock? Well, no, it's just me. I'm, I'm the only one. Oh. You know, those are, those are just things that kind of, you, may, you stop and think, like, huh. Here, Adjanijah is just, there's nobody behind him. He's just hired 50 men. He's hired a charity. He's hired all these. Go ahead of me. Put on the show. But there's nothing behind it. There's nothing substantial behind it like that. What he did is he took a book right out of the, the playbook, if I can say that way, of Absalom in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. He took a play right out of the, the book there. More is caught than taught. Look at verse 6. And his father... and. Did not or had not rebuked him at any time by saying, Why have you done so? He was also very good looking. His mother had been born, born him after Absalom. I mean, we know Absalom was very good looking too. Remember, he had the hair that weighed a lot, got caught up in the tree. That was the end of it. Uh, you know, he walked in and he kind of did one of those glamour things. I could see him, you know, just like playing with his hair, Absalom, you know, doing that whole thing, which just isn't right. But anyway, that's a, that's a whole other conversation. But it said his father had not rebuked him at any one time. Again, what do we see here? Even at David's deathbed, um, he's still not putting the obedience of God before his son's desires. And I say this very circumspect and very soberly tonight because I know this is a difficult topic and, and here we are at the end of our service this evening. I don't have the desired time to bring this out fully, okay? But um, what's apparent to me is hasn't there been enough bloodshed and sin because he failed to parent his children, David? Uh, I really do believe this is why, you know, we say more is caught than taught. You know, David had failed to restrain his passion in some areas of his life, didn't he? Lust in particular, right? His, show, his sons show the same inability to restrain their passions, don't they? Again, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 17 says, Correct your son, and he will give you rest. Yes, he will give you delight in your soul. Now, look, I understand for everyone here tonight, I know there's parents that are, have done a, a wonderful job um, reading the word of God, raising their parents in a godly way, or their children, excuse me, in a godly way, and their children are prodigals. They have chosen to just do what's right in their own eyes, and, and you, don't, you can't force another person to follow Jesus. I, I understand that. That happens. Um, and every year we get together at the, the pastor's conference on the East Coast and, you know, Pastor Joe Foch will stand up and say, prodigals, prodigal daddy, stand up. We're going to pray for you. And I'd love to tell you that in a room of 1,600 pastors all across the United States and some even international, I'd love to tell you that there's nobody that stands up. But unfortunately, there's hundreds. There's hundreds that will stand up all around that room of 1,600 men and we will lay hands on them and pray for them because a son or a daughter has gone astray. But God's not done, is he? 
God's not done. There's still work to be done. Just like in my life, God saved me. He'll save them. God always gets his man or woman. I believe that. Well, we read he was very good looking. Again, similar to what we had read about Absalom. The, the look sort of captivated the eyes. It might have been distracted from the fact that while on the outside he looks so great, on the inside he's hollow, empty, and self-serving. And that happens all too often today. You know, I see a lot of times at uh, events or even conferences, even ministry events, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll call up the most well-known guy out there that's, you know, a success in the world. He's maybe a success in the military. He's doing all these things right. And they just stand him up in front of men or pastors or people or a congregation. And people flock to that. And they have no understanding of the depth of relationship that individual has with Jesus Christ. But simply because of his, um, you know, claim or fame, if I can say it that way. I think that's a huge mistake. You know, one of the things you'll notice even in Cover Chapel here that we have done is whenever I have a guest speaker, someone I come in that I, I'm learning more about, I will always take the pulpit and put it to one of the sides. You've seen that when we've had conferences. And that's always sort of a signal to be, to the flock, be Bereans. Listen, just because somebody, while we vetted them, and I vetted them, we put these things to the side so that you understand there's a difference between when I stand up here and I read the word of God or another man stands up here line by line and verse by verse compared to somebody that might be giving an exhortation or be giving something. I purpose them to have them on the side so that we are all well aware that we need to be running everything through the grid of scripture. Just because they're speaking something doesn't mean we take it because mostly it's topical or it's on a particular subject. We need to go back and study those things and make sure they're true. That's why I do that. It's a, it's a signal to the flock. Hey, be watching. We don't know. We need to test everything in the light of Scripture, right? Um, then you'll see sometimes I'll have pastors that I know very well. I know their hearts. And you don't see the pulpit move because I, I know that I know that I know, right? Now, again, can anybody? Do, sure. And guess what I'll do? I'll get up and rip the thing right out. So I have no problems doing that, you know. Um, I'll protect the flock. I mean, that's, you know, lead, feed, protect. Verse 7, then he conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they followed and helped Adonijah. So isn't this interesting? So now when he first puts the chariots together, nobody's following, you know, behind him. So he goes, hang on, I better go get some guys. I got 50 guys running in front and everybody's looking at this. I better go get some guys. And, and I just found this very interesting. What's he do? He goes to Abiathar, the priest, Joab, first of all, the general, Zariah with him, Abiathar, the priest, and they followed and helped Adonijah. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jodiah, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, Reah, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. And Adonijah sacrificed sheep in auction and fatted calf by the stone of Zoleth, which is by Enrogel, or Enrogel. He also invited all his brothers and the king's sons and all the men of Judah, the king's servants, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the mighty men, or Solomon his brother. Isn't that interesting here, right? So let's go back. They followed and helped Adonijah. Sadly, Joab, David's chief general, right? Abiathar, he was the high priest of Israel, okay? They all support Adonijah. They didn't consult with the Lord. They didn't consult with David, right? They didn't consult with those who were in authority um, to give their support to this man that was not chosen by God. Joab, again, the most powerful Adonijah supporters, had always been fiercely loyal to David, hadn't he? But not to David's wishes. There is a difference, isn't there? 
In supporting Adonijah's pretensions to the throne, Joab was acting characteristically. He was doing exactly what he's done in the past. Now, Nathan, Zadok, right, and the mighty men who helped or who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. Fortunately, there were some prominent people in Israel who did not support him. And often this is what you see. We see it even today when, when the enemy's at work for division. You'll see it work this way. I, I pray to God we never see it here, but you see it follow a single string. I think of other men and other uh, pastorates or other you know, fellowships. I, I, it literally is right out of the pit of hell, and it follows the same playbook from the enemy every single time, every single time this way. And what did they do? So now they're all together, and what does he decide he's going to do, Adonijah? He says, you know what? Let's grab the sheep. Let's grab the auction. Let's grab the fatted calf, and we're going to burn the fat of these animals, right? We're going to sacrifice them to the Lord. We're going to use the meat to hold a dinner, honoring and blessing our supporters. What does that sound like to you today? It sounds to me like a political campaign dinner. Is it any different than what we see today when someone's running for president or you're coming behind them to support them? And uh, maybe even a lobbyist situation. You might buy a table, right? And, and again, this is different, right? If you're going to do that, then, then, you know, you can do that. You're, you have the right to vote. You have the right to support different people. And I encourage you to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. However, this is taking the matters of God and they're treating it like it's a political campaign and a show, and they're basically putting a feast on, but they're doing it in a way where it's supposedly the fat, as we read in Leviticus, and we've already seen in God's word, the, the choice, the fat and the choice part of the meat was supposed to be sacrificed and burned to the Lord. It was not supposed to be something that they were willing to consume, but what do they do? They take it upon themselves, and they begin eating the choicest piece of meat that way. They burn the fat, and, you know, everybody's having a great celebration. This is a good idea. We like Adonijah because he's going to bring prosperity to the land. He's going to let us do what we want. We've got all these cattle. Let's cook them, right? Let's eat, which I'm all, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I would have been part of that part, you know? I'd be like, yes, there's beef tonight. We're eating barbecue. I'm in, but not, not when it violates God's word, not when, it, not when it goes against God's commandments and statutes. It's a political campaign of maneuvering. That's what he's doing. I want you just to see that here. And only those in direct support of his campaign were invited. That's how I know it's a political campaign. Because the other guys and ladies were not what? Invited, including his own family, Solomon, right? His own brother. So this is not sacrificing to the Lord. It's a political move to lavish the supporters or his supporters with a feast. That's all he's doing. Let's read it for what it is, right? And I do find it interesting that he didn't invite Solomon, his brother. I think it gives us the idea that he knew God's direction and leading for Israel. This wasn't something like, I don't know what my brother thinks about this. Because we're going to read, and we'll close with verse 11 through 14. I know I keep saying we'll close. We'll close through 11, 14. That's probably a good place for us to stop tonight. We're going to read that Nate, or the prophet, yeah, Nathan's going to turn around and come back, and he's going to say, he's going to go to Bathsheba, and he's going to say, hey, your son, and you need to know about this. This is what's actually going on. There's a political uh, coup afoot. And oh, by the way, when that's going to happen, he starts to say, and I know we don't read it in the word of God that way, but he insinuates it. We don't see the caption of that anywhere in our text, that David had a conversation with Bathsheba, Bathsheba, excuse me, previously about this arrangement that Solomon would be the heir to the throne. And I believe that, well, certainly it's in here and the word of God is true. I know that, and I bet you Adonijah know that too. And so what this was is this is a political coup and a political wrangling. And don't we see that today? Didn't we just see that in Israel? Have you been following the news in Israel? 
Bibi Netanyahu, and you just saw what happened there and how they turned around and made a move like that, right? There's just a lot of that going on lately. I think we're seeing more and more of that. And I, I, some people even equate to what just happened with our elections in this country. We kind of saw some of that stuff happening where things weren't being done the way they've been done in the past. And I, and I get it. Just, you know, that's why it's good to study the Bible. We see these things. We recognize the warfare. And it gives us the opportunity to pray and start understanding what, what should we be doing here. So Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? At this point, David's olden age. He's just trying to keep warm, right? Come, please, let us, now give, let us now give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Very important. Go immediately to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord, O king, swear to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly, your son Solomon shall reign after me? There was already an agreement. Again, we don't have this written in scripture that shows when David had done this, but Nathan is recalling it. He's a prophet of God. He's a mouthpiece of God. He's saying, you need to go and remind David of this and let him know this is happening right now because David's unaware of this. And he shall sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? Then while you are still talking there with the king, I will also come in after you and confirm your words. And so and David, our Lord, does not know it. I think that's striking, right? Here's the king. He's still in authority. Uh, I just think of David's life and how he honored Saul in that way, that who would come against God's anointed that way? And yet we see Adonijah didn't ever listen to that aspect of David, right? Never listened to that teaching of his father. And, swordly, and, and sadly, neither did Joab or Abiathar, the high priest, or any of them that supported Adonijah. None of them fell into this. So I think this shows us the wrong that Adonijah attempt to take the throne was far removed from the power and showing us really the power that David had at that point because he was sort of, I think he was not aware. He didn't know what was going on around him in the kingdom. And he says, then, I like that he says that you may save, Nathan says, you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Do you recognize that? Do you understand how real that is for him? Because the very first thing when Adonijah became king, what he would do, and was customary at that time, to protect his dynasty instead of David's dynasty through Solomon or Solomon's dynasty, is he would kill his mother that way, or the mother, in this case, Solomon's mother, and kill Solomon. Yet God has chosen Solomon, hadn't he? He's going he's to kill any potential rival to the throne, including Bathsheba and Solomon. And he says, your son Solomon shall reign after me. David, again, made this promise to Bathsheba. The specific promise, as I said, isn't recorded. But we know, if you look in your Bibles or you're taking notes, very important. Somebody will ask you this. First Chronicles 22, verses 5 through 9, that David did, in fact, intend for Solomon to succeed him as king. It is recorded there that David is aware of this. And this wasn't just something that Nathan was trying to uh, swindle or make up to kind of change the events? No, this was already recorded. First Chronicles 22, verses 5 through 9. And I think this was a just, just remarkable display of grace because the son of the wife David that he took through adultery, the murder that David committed, right? Probably the most disobedient point in David's life that his son that was a part of this, Solomon, should be heir to the throne, should be king. I just want you to see that for a minute. Who can't God use and who won't God save? I mean, this is grace. So he says, while you're still talking there with the king, I will also come in after you and confirm your words. And so Nathan arranges 
So the message would be presented in a convincing way that way, right? No matter, uh, not a matter of opinion or, or some kind of speculation regarding Adonijah's attempt on the throne. Because you got to remember, David was not very good with that when it came to his sons and the things that was brought. He didn't parent well, right? Let's just be transparent. He didn't parent well. And so had somebody else come like Solomon alone and said, Dad, Adonijah's trying to take the throne. Yeah, yeah, you guys work it out, right? He, he just wasn't a good father. But now when, Dave, when uh, Nathan comes, the prophet, he's going to listen. When Bathsheba comes, he's going to listen, right? And so Nathan knows he has to stand with the Lord and he's not worried about his life. He's not worried about what Adonijah is going to do to him. He just wants to stand with the Lord and leave the consequences to God. And I think that's a remarkable place for us to end this evening because all of you have been asked to do the very same thing today. Every one of you here and everyone that's a born-again believer in Christ, you have been asked for the such a time as this to stand in the gap and to stand with Jesus regardless of the cost. Right? That's what it is to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not based on public opinion. It's not based on whether it feels good or it's comfortable. It's a beautiful privilege. And we're going to spend eternity with God. So why not enjoy serving the King? Amen? Will you stand? We'll pray. And we'll close here this evening. I'm going to forego our closing song. But, uh, I pray on the way home you'll worship Jesus while you're in your car driving as a family or if you're alone, singing all the way to Jesus on the way home. Father, we just thank you for your holy word. Again, thank you that these things are types for us, examples. Lord, we just began in just 14 very simple verses here, Lord, and already profound, profound theology, profound axioms, profound truth, God, that Lord, I believe you're going to speak to somebody here even tonight. Maybe there's something going on in a business dealing, or maybe there's something going on, Lord, in a, an office space or a family or a home or with a child or a college situation. God, that you're going to use these same biblical principles, that we need to take a stand. And while the world may be going after Adonijah, Lord, you've called us to stay faithful to one after your own heart, Jesus Christ. Father, we know he's your only begotten son and in whom you are well pleased. So God, we just thank you for this holy word tonight. We pray change us and transform us, Lord. Protect us from all evil. And God, lead us that we may follow you and walk in your commandments and statutes, that it would be a blessing and well with our life. We ask this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and God's people pray. Amen. God bless you all. I love you.